Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. Welcome to Menlo Church. My name is Abby, and it is so good to be with you on this uh, special weekend. Welcome to those of you at all of our campuses and those of you who are listening in online. We are glad you are with us. Um, I had the great gift of working on Menlo Church staff for several years. Uh, I left just over a year ago when my husband Sam and I found out that we, we would be having a baby, our first baby. Um, And that happened. Mark William Odio was born just over seven months ago. And it's been a hard, uh, wonderful, joyfully sleep-deprived seven months. Now, that being said, it's fitting that I would get to spend uh, time with you today, not just because it's Mother's Day, but also because we're launching this three-week series on the concept, that word, legacy. And whether you're here this weekend and you're a parent, a mother, a friend, a son, a coworker, a spouse, there's this reality for all of us, which is this. Our lives are not lived in a vacuum of sorts, but rather they have ripple effects. And we know this. And those ripple effects, for better or for worse, are what we call our legacy. And this notion of legacy, it's something that God actually has quite a bit to say about. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, God's people are about to enter into the promised land. But before they proceed, God makes it very clear that the way they choose to live in this new land will have ripple effects that actually outlive them. And in doing this, God reminds Israel, he says, remember, when you were in Egypt, I rescued you. And I brought you into the desert and I led you and I I fed you and I gave you the law as a gift so that, you know, justice would be upheld among you. And so God says all these things and then he essentially says, this journey we've been on together, this story of your life and my life intertwined, this is your legacy. Here's how we put it in Deuteronomy chapter 11. God says this, You shall put these words of mine in your heart and soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you're at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you rise, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate so that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your ancestors to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. In other words, God tells Israel, your story of life with me, this is what you will give. Now notice he doesn't say, you'll give your accomplishments. He doesn't say, you know, your legacy will be how much wealth you leave your children. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say it will be your pedigree or your resume. He says, it's your story. Your, your life with me, that will be the single most important thing that you pass along. 
A few months back, John reached out to me and he asked if I'd be willing to preach on this particular weekend about sort of what motherhood has taught me about God and this this notion of legacy. And I have to be honest with you, initially I felt pretty uneasy because for me, this, this transition into motherhood, it hasn't been smooth. It's been joyful. It's been more fun than I could have possibly imagined, but not easy. We found out we were pregnant with Mark on a Sunday afternoon, what I thought was uh, day five of a very curious bout with jet lag. Sam appropriately and accurately identified as something else. We got in the car, he said, you're pregnant. And I said, that's impossible. And he said, nope. And I guess it goes without saying that Mark was a surprise. He was the best surprise. We tell him that every day, but a real shocker. I always wanted to be a mom but it wasn't something I felt like I'd be particularly good at. I tend to value my independence. Word on the street has it that infants are pretty dependent. I also really, really, really enjoy my sleep. I thought kids um, were something that would happen sort of years down the road when we'd perfected our marriage and we'd learned how to renew our vehicle registration on time, you know, important things like that. I had fears about how to mother a child, real fears. Like there's this little life entrusted to you and now you're supposed to somehow raise them to be kind and generous and loving. And this world, it's crazy. And and all the while while you're doing this, you've gotta work a job full time to pay for that bilingual preschool. And you've somehow got to find the time to make them organic, non-GMO baby food. I'm still trying to figure that one out. I was afraid. And please hear me, I say this with utmost sensitivity because I know there are folks right now listening to this message who have struggled with infertility, who have wanted to be a parent more than anything and for whatever reason that cannot be a reality for them or it's not happening on the timeline they thought it might. I know from walking with friends through that journey that it's one of the loneliest and often hardest things a person can face and I just want you to know our church sees you today, we celebrate you, we are with you. But for me and my story, I was afraid. So in sort of typical Silicon Valley fashion, I responded to this fear by trying to sort of regain control, right? By filling my time. I'd left my job at this point, so I was trying to plan my next career move. Let me tell you, it's a real interesting exercise to write a cover letter at eight months pregnant. Just kind of slip that one in there. But in the midst of this season, I had a phone conversation with a good friend and a mentor of mine, and sort of without taking a breath, I unloaded all of my plans to be you know, working by Mark's three-month birthday. And when I'd finished, there was this long pause on the other end, and this wise friend of mine, he, he just kind of stopped and he said, Abby, don't miss this. And the moment he said those words, I knew that the this he was talking about was not my next job opportunity, It wasn't my next strategic life move or figuring out which current and trending parenting philosophy we could commit to. The this he was talking about was was this baby, was becoming a mother, complete with the fears I had, which were many, complete with the inadequacies and anxieties I was feeling. Don't miss this, he said. That was my first lesson in parenting, in legacy. 
See, if we, if we reflect on this passage from Deuteronomy, you'll notice that as God encourages his people to leave a particular kind of legacy for God's children, he first beckons them with this simple but striking invitation to be with God in the present. And that's so important to not miss this, whatever this is for you. Bind these words, the story of God on your heart and mind, God says, when you walk through doors, when you wake up, when you go to sleep. In other words, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, in this moment, that is the space in which God God longs to make himself known to you. When you cross thresholds, a new job, a new city, a new baby, when you have a plan for your life but the roadmap was just sort of tossed out the window and all of a sudden you're trying to regroup. Mother or not, we've all been there. When you feel that soul-crushing disappointment, don't miss this. See, friends, my first lesson in parenthood had nothing to do with how my, I parent my child and everything to do, everything to do with how God longs to be a parent to me. Right now, today. And I hung up the phone and I shut off my computer. I got off LinkedIn and I took a long walk and I prayed the first honest prayer that I'd prayed in a long time. God, I'm scared about becoming a mother. I, don't, I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm re- worried I'll be more into my career than my child. I'm worried it will you know, cause Sam and I to grow apart. I have doubts. I want, I want my kid to know you, but I have, I have doubts. How am I supposed to pass along faith when, when that's true for me? I feel ashamed that I'm not more excited and grateful. I know people long for this. Why don't why isn't this like the best day of my life? The Christian writer Anne Lamont has this great reflection on her first year of being a parent. She writes this, she says, one of the worst things about being a parent for me is the self-discovery, the being face-to-face with one's secret insanity and brokenness and rage. See, there's this, this wild and certainly countercultural notion we see all throughout Scripture everywhere you turn, that invites us to embrace, not escape weakness. That we name, not run from our pain. And the beauty of this invitation is that God, like a good parent, meets us here. And not only that, but he does this transforming work, right? This is Jesus turning water into wine. He says, give me water and I will make the best wine. In the very first chapter of Deuteronomy, God says to his people, when you come into this land, there will be people groups who are bigger than you, armies unlike anything you've ever seen before. There will be challenges that seem beyond you. But notice how God encourages them. He says, throughout your entire journey until you reached this very place, the Lord your God has carried you just as a parent carries a child. See, as the story goes, when we name weakness, there's this emptying that happens. There's this vulnerable space in our lives that now God is able to fill in a way that only God can to bring healing, to bring fullness, to bring courage, to bring comfort, to carry us. And part of what we see in this Deuteronomy text is that our ability to pass on a legacy of any sort, whether it be to our children or to a friend, it begins not with our strength, not with what we're, we're qualified and equipped to do, 
but with our weakness. It's our ability to be present to the brokenness, not repress or ignore it or work it away that actually grounds our legacy, that gives power to our story, that makes space for God to to meet us in a way that offers this this love and, and power. Now we have a story. So on October 7th of last year, Mark William Odio was born. Seven pounds, six ounces of screaming bloody murder perfection. There he is. That is the photo we put on the Christmas card. However, this is the one that more accurately captures those early days. I have to tell you as a side note, I was once talking with a good friend who compared the art of writing a sermon to um, giving birth. And I guess that's because preaching a sermon is difficult and you know, demands a lot of energy and time. And um, I've now preached a fair number of sermons and I've also given birth. And I'm here to tell you on the record, they are two very different things. <laughs> I won't say more, but I'm glad we got that clarified. So October 7th came, 2.59, we became parents of the most precious baby boy. And it was the most profound and joyful, most excruciating, most wonderful moment of our lives. The night Mark was born, we just stayed up staring at him, fighting over which of us got to hold him. And Sam kept insisting that because I'd had him for nine months, um, it was his turn. And I kept insisting that precisely because I had had him for nine months, I got to hold him whenever I wanted. But we couldn't stop smiling and we would, we would look at each other and we'd look at Mark and there was this sort of internal combustion of joy that we couldn't put to words but we just, we both knew it. This wasn't our plan. Mark wasn't our plan. If we'd authored our own story, we would have written it differently. And yet God supplies in this profound way, God meets us at the end of what we believe we can do and he gives strength. Guys, this is the good news. This is the gospel. Gives us this way forward, gives joy. Early on in Mark's little life, I struggled with some real postpartum depression for about four months. And um, we took it one day at a time and God met us there, right? He met us in the form of our community, in the form of meals, in the form of friends showing up on their way home from work just to say, let me hold him, go take a nap, let me hold him. Strength and weakness. Or often it would happen that Mark would wake up at 3 a.m. and Sam and I would just be exhausted from lack of sleep and we'd exchange a couple words about whose turn it was to be on duty. I won't quote those exchanges lest you find me unholy, but then the morning would come and we'd be too tired to hash it out and we'd just look at each other and say, you know, all's forgiven. (laughs) Like, let's just forgive one another. No questions asked. And somehow these accumulative moments of grace sort of brought Sam and I closer together in this beautiful and unexpected way. Transformation, strength, and weakness. This was my first parenting lesson. Be here, be present, don't miss this. My second lesson in parenting was closely related to the first. See, part of the mystery wrapped up in this sort of strength-weakness dichotomy is that our own inadequacies as a parent when we invite God into those spaces, actually become some of our greatest parenting strengths. Let me say a little bit more about that. This is true for parents in the room, but it's also true for anyone who who longs to have an impact, 
that's positive, that encourages the kingdom of God. If that's you, then this is true. When we embrace our weakness, the power of our legacy actually increases. The Deuteronomist also said this, and know right now that your children haven't yet, what your children haven't known or yet witnessed. The Lord your God's discipline, his power, his mighty and outstretched arm, the signs and the acts he performed in the heart of Egyptian territory against Egypt's King Pharaoh and all of his land. And then he'll go on to say, talk about these things, right? Talk about them, uh, how you saw God when you couldn't find a way forward. When you couldn't get yourself out of Egypt, talk about what God did. Israel's legacy is God's rescue. Israel's legacy is God's strength. It's no secret to a lot of us in the church world that many young adults um, who grew up going to church are actually leaving sort of in, in these massive droves. As a parent and um, as a mother who longs to see her child grow up to know Jesus, this is a really troubling thought. Research done by the Pew Center indicates that somewhere between 40 and 50% of kids who grew up in Christian families are leaving the church right now today. I'd actually guess that number's gone up a little bit. One of the scholars exploring this drift is a man by the name of Stephen Garber. And in his book called The Fabric of Faithfulness, he identifies that one of the reasons this is happening is because in sort of the evangelical Christian paradigm, that's our world, there's this gap um, between knowing and doing, right? You could also say it's a perceived gap between belief and behavior. And people are seeing, you know, Jesus lived one way, but the church is behaving another way, and quite understandably, they're saying, well, we don't really want anything to do with the church. We'll just go to CrossFit or SoulCycle or whatever it might be. And so for those of us longing to raise kids to you know, love and follow Jesus, the question is not how do we indoctrinate them to this Christian worldview, but whether, rather how do we weave together knowing about God and doing all of life with God? The Deuteronomist answers this question when he says, you know, teach these things to your children, talk about them when you're sitting down in your house and when you're out and about doing whatever it is you're doing in the world, when you're lying down and when you're getting up integrate the story of faith into the everyday, complete with its challenges, complete with the brokenness of your own story, complete with, you know, the injustice we see in our communities. That stuff is not off limits. Talk about that. Talk about how God cares about that. Meet us in that. And I think sometimes we live with the sense that the goal isn't integration, but rather perfection, to just hold it all together. That's not, that's not what God's about. God wants our honest engagement. In fact, one of the more problematic notions we can pass on to our children and those we care most about in this world is this illusion, this facade of perfection because it communicates to our kids, I don't need God, why should they? Instead of breeding intimacy and trust between us and our children, it, it breeds the opposite. It breeds secrecy, breeds anxiety. When I reflect on um, my own childhood experience of faith, this notion of integration, it, it so resonates with me. I grew up in a family of 
five, I had two siblings and my parents. This is a photo of me and my mom on my second birthday, my mom and I on my second birthday. Um, she was a great mother, not perfect, but I'm deeply thankful for her legacy. When Mark was first born, she was on speed dial all the time. We'd, you know, he'd, I don't know, he'd cough and we'd pick up the phone and be like, he's coughing, is he supposed to be coughing? And she'd be like, yes, it's okay, you know. Um, but during one of these conversations, she passed along a bit of wisdom that I continue to treasure. She said to me, Abby, remember, it's faithfulness, not perfection, that is the goal. It's faithfulness, not perfection, that is the goal. And when I look back on my leg the legacy of my mother, I think about, you know, the most spiritually formative moments in my life. What immediately comes to mind is, you know, the night my uncle passed away. My mom's brother, she gathered us all around in the living room and she just began to pray and she was weeping. And she didn't know what to pray, but it communicated to us in that moment, this is a God we can trust with our tears. I think about the time on Christmas Eve where we were headed to my grandma's house and there was a man on the side of the road, he was holding a sign asking for money or for help and my dad pulled over and he said, you know, it's Christmas Eve, why don't you, why don't you come with us? And he opened the door of our minivan and there were three wide-eyed teenagers sitting there like, what is going on? And my mom looked at us and she said, he is part of our family tonight. Like, no question. I think about once when my mom got angry with me for something and she sent me to my room and she came and disciplined me and when she was done, she said, you know, Abby, I wanna apologize for losing my temper there. I should have responded differently in that moment. One of the single greatest gifts my mother passed along to my siblings and I was not this a theology that we were taught to believe, not just the insistence that we be a good church family. The greatest gift she gave us, her legacy, was the introduction to this God who could be trusted. The final lesson I've learned about God through this journey of motherhood has to do with the ways in which this concept of um, and shaping power of God's love has just become real to me. One of the central themes of the book of Deuteronomy is that God's covenant love for his people, um, in fact, two-thirds of the Old Testament references to God's love happen in two books in the Bible, and those books are Deuteronomy and the book of Hosea. And central uh, to this particular expression of the nature of God's love is this idea of covenant. In Deuteronomy 7-9, we read this. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now what's interesting is that if you know kind of the story of Israel, you know that the people don't in fact keep God's commandments. And yet God keeps his end of the deal. He keeps faithfully showing up, he keeps chasing them down, he keeps relentlessly pursuing this people that he so loves, he never stops. See, we live in a world where the default expression of love is not covenantal like we see in scripture, but contractual. And contractual love is different. Contractual love says, you know, as long as um, there's something in it for me, I'll show up. As long as I gain something from this arrangement, whether it be, you know, status or money or just feeling good about myself, well, then I'll be there. But God's love for us is not like that. It's it's covenantal, it says, I'll show up and I'll keep showing up, period. You know, I think about, about Mark's little life and though I don't fully understand 
this expression of God's love, the, the depth of it. I think Mark has taught me a little bit more about it. When Mark was born those first couple weeks, there was this way I experienced my love for him that had nothing to do with his ability to give or offer anything to me. In fact, if anything, he was taking things away like my sleep. The love sermon I felt for him, it wasn't earned, it, it wasn't even emotional, it simply was. It was a reality. One of my favorite authors, Marilyn Robinson, she has this great quote where she sort of captures this idea. She says, it's your existence I love you for mainly. Existence to me now seems like the most remarkable thing that could ever be imagined. And these words, they resonate with me. Simply because Mark was alive, he was loved. And we'd sacrifice anything, sleep, sanity, going to movies. We'd give it up for him. Sure, we have hopes for his life, but however his story unfolds, we'll continue to show up for him. In the last few months, as we've come through sort of that thick fog of infanthood, um, we've started to leave Mark with babysitters to go out to movies again and things. And every time I say goodbye to him, I'll kiss that little bald head, and I'll say to him, Mom always comes back. I didn't come up with that. I read it in a parenting book somewhere, but I like it. And as we consider this idea of legacy, you know, it can be intimidating to think about how we best help the people in our spheres who we care about the most become their best self, become the person that God intended them to be. But part of what we see in looking at God's engagement with his people, his children, is that the most significant and shaping gift he gave them was this covenantal love. Sure, he gave them discipline, and he gave them rules to live by, and he gave them boundaries, and he said, you know, don't cross this boundary or things won't go well for you. But over and above all of that, he just kept coming back. In the book of Isaiah, God reminds his people of this. God compares God's self to a mother, saying, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. As an aside, this is just a good reminder to remember that God is not male. God's character and person reflect both male and female attributes. Both man and woman were made in the image of God. But essentially, what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah is this, God always comes back. As a parent, there continue to be moments every day where I couldn't feel less qualified for the task, but God's example of love to his children gives me hope. I once watched an interview with the, the famous author, Toni Morrison, and the interviewer asked her, you know, how did you get to where you are today? What was your sort of, what's the reason for your success? And her answer was so profound. She said, I got to where I am today for one reason, and that's because when I was a child and I'd walk into a room, my dad's face would just light up. If you think about it, Israel did not become who God longed for them to be overnight. Their character took shape slowly, and part of what they had to learn was that to be a child of God meant they were loved so deeply and fully that they need not run to lesser gods. 
God's love for you and for me, it's not an emotion. It's not something he dangles in front of us and threatens to take it away if we misbehave. It's not something we can earn like we earn everything else in life. It just is. And it will continue to be. You know, I may not be able to make homemade baby food. I've tried twice now, it's been a disaster. I may not be able to teach Mark a second language. Um, Maybe biblical Greek, but so far he shows no interest. I could, couldn't write a parenting best practices blog, no way, but I can keep showing up. I can keep lighting up when I see him. I can keep coming back wherever his little life takes him. I can keep speaking truth as best as I understand it, but never, never at the compromise of the covenant. I can keep doing my best to reflect in a small way the love of God that will ground Mark's existence and identity more than anything, anything else I can offer. That's our legacy, friends. At the end of the day, when it comes to mothering, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to impacting the people that we so love, I think the hardest part of all this is that we lack control. We can be honest about brokenness. We can strive to be faithful rather than perfect. We can keep showing up in love. We can do all of that, but at the end of the day, we don't hold the outcome. Some of you know that better than me. Our kids are their own people. They have God-given minds and wills that are entirely their own. And more than that, we live in a world of circumstances that we cannot control or manufacture. That's just how it works. And no one, no one, understood this reality better than Jesus' own mother understood it. In Matthew 26, Jesus hangs on the cross and he's about to take his final breath. And the text tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is still there. Most of the other disciples have fled at this point. Their love was contractual. This is not what they expected of Jesus for him to end up on a cross. They're gone. But Mary stays. Mary shows up. Mary will not leave her son. And recently, just since Mark was born, I was, I was reading this part of the story and I realized how painful that moment must have been for her. Because though she could show up, she couldn't pull her son off of that cross. She couldn't save him. The closest thing I can think of is when Mark was two months old, he ended up in the hospital um, with the flu, that crazy flu that was going around this winter. And there was nothing we could do. We, we held him, we watched his fever climb, he was screaming, just so fragile, and we were helpless. I know parents who have been through far worse than that with their kids. But the beauty of that scene with Jesus and his mother is that he dies to compensate for that which she could not do for him. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus dies to compensate for that which even his mother could not do for him. She can't save him, but he can save. And as I, I think about parenting and legacy, there are, are things we can do for those we care most about, but there are things we can't. There are choices we cannot make, roads we cannot keep them from walking down, a world that is both harsh and beautiful that we cannot protect them from. We cannot save our kids, but this is why parenting always leads us back to the very same place it took Mary, 
the very same place it takes us, to the foot of the cross. Because it's here, ultimately, that we're invited to entrust that which is absolutely the most important to us, to a God who would do anything to save, who did everything to save. And this, this is the most courageous act of mothering, of parenting, of leaving a legacy behind with those that we love. We love them more than ourselves, and in doing so, we have to realize they're not actually ours. They're God's. They're God's. And so as we end today on this Mother's Day weekend, I'd love to just give us space for a moment to make that offering, to name that truth, to find comfort in it. That the people that we love the most, that our children whom we love the most, there is a God who died to save, who loves them more than you or I know. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before you, we're grateful. Grateful that our legacy, we are not left to our own devices, to our own strength, to our own willpower to create. But God, you bind yourself to us in a way that is incomprehensible to our, our small minds. You say, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Like a mother, you love us, and infinitely more so. And God, on this, this day, as we celebrate the strength and the courage of ushering another life into this world and caring for it, we come before you and we just name the people for whom we care the most, be they our children, our parents, who we long for good things. We long, them to, long for them to be part of your kingdom work. God, we, we name those people. God, thank you that you sent your son, your son to a cross. That at the end of the day, uh, all the things that qualify us and all the things that disqualify us from being parents, God, they, they fall short of, of what you did on that cross. You brought life. You brought hope. And, and we just name that for, for ourselves and for the people we love, our hope is in that. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.